We are concluding a series uh, called Faith in the Four Segways from Star Wars today, and it's, it's, the idea is to take lessons or stories or ideas from inside Star Wars and kind of apply them to Christianity. It's stuff that I want to talk about that we can relate to Star Wars. And the story of the first six movies is basically, you, you start by thinking it's the story of Luke Skywalker, but it's not. Uh, if you watch the original three that started in 1979, I think, 1978-79, you'll think it's a story about Luke Skywalker, but it actually turns into being a story about Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker. And if you watch the, the first three movies, the prequels, you find that out. And so this is the climax of Anakin Skywalker's entire life. And as, as, as much as people hated the original three movies, you do see a story of a young boy that's filled with vim and vigor and excited and he loves his mom and he falls in love with a woman and he loves them so much that when they're in danger he's willing to do awful things to protect them and that becomes the downfall of Anakin Skywalker he, it, that, that's how he turns into the bad guy in the mask and the cloak with the missing arm is because he, he loved them so much he was willing to do anything to protect them and so in this last scene where you see him going back and forth, watching his son. Sorry, I'm ruining that for you. Luke is Darth Vader's son. Sorry. He's watching his son being tortured and dying, and he's also watching the source of his power, and he's having to make a choice between the two, and he finally makes the right choice. There's finally some degree of redemption in the life of Anakin Skywalker. And what you find is the entire first six movies are, at their base, a story of redemption. It's a story of a, a pretty good kid turning pretty terribly evil and then being restored. And, and soon after this, Luke Skywalker is trying to drag Darth Vader to his ship. And he says, I've got to get you on the ship. We've got to get you out of here because the Death Star is about to explode. He says, I've got to save you. And Darth Vader, or Anakin Skywalker, says to his son, he says, let me see you with my own eyes. And he takes off the helmet. And he says, Luke, you already have saved me. And we'll get into that as we go on a little bit. But it's this idea that no matter how bad, no matter how evil, no matter how many star systems a person destroys, that there's this possibility, that there's potential inside them that something beautiful could come back. And if there was ever a segue to the gospel, to the story of Jesus, I, I think that's, that's the story, that's the idea. When you, when you read the New Testament, you can't get past themes of redemption, reconciliation, restoration, healing, bringing people together, cleaning people up, polishing them. It's, that's the story of the New Testament. It's like there's this awfulness that I fix. That's God's attitude. There's all this awful stuff, and I'm in the business of fixing it. And so when you, when you talk about Jesus and the mission of Jesus, you find so many, so many different references to this in Him, in God, in Jesus. So if you want to know what God looks like, He looks like Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, this describes him. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then at the end of time, you see this. Worthy are you. They're talking about Jesus, and they're talking about these scrolls that the angels bring. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people, and nation. And these are just two of, I don't know, a thousand verses dealing with this theme of redemption. This theme of taking something that's broken, something that's ugly, something that's worth the trash pile, 
and making it into something beautiful. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Landfill Harmonic or Orchestra. Anybody heard of this? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Landfill Harmonic Orchestra. The Landfill Harmonic Orchestra goes to landfills all over the world. And they dig through them. And, and we look at a picture like this and we think, burn it, right? That's, I mean, find a place to bury it. There's already so much junk in the landfills. We're trying to minimize what we put in the landfills. So we're trying to minimize what we destroy, basically. And the landfills are, are, are filled with neglected items. They're filled with items that are too dirty, too ugly, too broken to use. And the landfill harmonic orchestra, they go digging through these essential dumpsters and they make something beautiful out of it. I've, I've contacted them online trying to get them to come to Louisville and so far no success. But they have a full orchestra filled with instruments made from the junk piles. And uh, to me, there's, there's, uh, it would be hard to find an analogy for the gospel more perfect. You know, we look at a pile like this and we say worthless, ugly, terrible. But somebody was able to look in and say something really beautiful can come out of that. And that is the baseline of the gospel of Jesus, is that he takes things that are ugly. It, in, in the Old Testament, it talks about he makes beauty out of ashes. Who can do that? But God can. But see, as Christians, we don't tend to think that way very much. We tend to play what, what they call triage. And some of you will be familiar with the word triage, and some of you won't. Here's another time that we scar your children. Triage is when... There's been a calamity of some sort. It could be an earthquake. It could be a bus wreck. It could, you know, it could be a train derailment. And in all of these situations, there are the mildly injured, the seriously injured, and the hopelessly injured. And the job of the triage nurse is to go through and designate who is who so that the doctors, when they come in, will know where to spend their resources. So they might come up to one, and this is actually a reenactment of a triage situation. These are not actually real, you know, dying people in front of you. But the triage nurse might say, this one is beyond hope. And they'll put a tag on that person's feet so that when the doctor comes by, the doctor knows, I probably can't save this one. I should move on to someone that I can save. And the next one they'll go to could be seriously injured, but they might, you know, it might be shattered bones, it might be a broken jaw, it might be... Awful looking, but the triage nurse knows the difference between what is, you know, going to cause someone to die and what is that they can live through, but it looks bad. So they might put a tag on this person that says, you know, a, a yellow tag. They might have yellow, red, and green tags. Whereas a green tag person might just be in shock. And so they'll say, this person just needs someone to talk to. And th that helps the doctors sort who to spend their time with. And unfortunately, as Christians, a lot of us want to play triage. That's, that's how we don't, we don't view ourselves as people who look into the junk pile and make something beautiful. Instead, we view ourselves as people who look into the world and try to figure out who is who and who belongs where. My favorite band, Waterdeep, you'll hear me quote them all the time, mostly because they're brilliant. But they, they have a song called Long on Diagnosis, Short on Cure. And in the song, Don Chaffer, the lead singer, is talking about a musician he encounters. And he says the musician would say in his songs, it said, he'd say, this one's close to dying, this one's fine. This one's past the turning point, he's crossed the line. He says he was awful good at triage, and that's for sure, but he was long on diagnosis and short on cure. And that describes, in my opinion, how many Christians view others. We try to sort who is lost and who is found, who is right, who is wrong, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. And in doing so, most of us err on the side of condemnation. 
Most of us look at bad people and automatically put them on that side, like we talked about last week of us versus them. It's us, the good guys, versus them, the bad guys. But I don't believe that's how Jesus views people. I don't believe Jesus does that to people. And, and we'll talk about why I believe that in, in, in short. But we, we'd like to think that people don't actually do this. That people, you know, we think, I'm not like that. And, and probably the guy sitting next to me at church here is not like that. But the reality is there are a lot of people out there like that. And some of us are uh, of that mentality. And I want to introduce you to Joseph Bond, who's sitting here in the room. And Joe's right back here in the back. And uh, he and his wife, Molly. And Joseph, when he was 17 years old at an Easter service, made a commitment to Jesus Christ. He, he, uh, he responded to some kind of message and said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And for about two or three months was passionate about following Jesus. And he, he, even, he even sensed that God might call him and ask him to be a preacher. Um, after just two or three months of, of following Jesus, he kind of thought he might go in that direction in his life. But he was talking to people about Jesus all the time. And he knew he wanted to preach, but he didn't know how. And he didn't really have any idea even what direction to start heading in. And so he called up a friend of his who was his Boy Scout leader for years. And his, the Boy Scout leader was actually a pastor of a church. So he thought this would be a perfect guy to talk to. So Joe sat down with, with this guy, this pastor of a church. And he, he gave him the spiel. He said, I've, you know, I had this encounter at Easter. And I'm, I'm really feeling passionate about Jesus. I don't know the exact conversation. But he said, I, I think I might want to be a preacher you know, what? where do I go from here? And the pastor said, Joseph, he said, I, he said, I need to tell you something. He said, over the years, he said, and I don't know, I don't, again, I don't know the exact words, but he said, you've been kind of a troublemaker. And he said, I've told my kids to stay away from you. He said, I don't know if you understand this. He said, I don't know if you know this. He said, but there are some people that God designs to go to heaven, and there are some people that God creates to go to hell. He said, and if I ever have met a person who God created to go to hell, it's you. Guys in the room with us right now, this isn't a story I picked up on Reader's Digest. This is, this is a real thing. This is real stuff that people say. They couple bad theology with a bad internal heart and ugly stuff comes out. And I, I don't think anybody could ever read the New Testament and see the heart of God in a statement like that. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But, it, but to an extent, a, a lot of people do that in their minds. They do that in their brains. And we just have no business doing that. I was walking on campus at Murray State one day with a buddy. And I remember him yelling. This was back in the 90, early 90s. I remember him yelling at a guy that was probably for, to the back of the room. He said, hey, man, how you doing? And the guy turned and looked. It was really weird. He said, he said do you know Jesus? And the guy just kind of stared. He said, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. And I'll, I'll admit, at that time, I, ha I was uncomfortable with that, but there was a part of me that thought, he's really brave. I mean, I I'm just a different guy than I was in the early 90s. But there, I, as Christians, there are a lot of people in Christendom that think that way. That they, and, and they think things that they, don't even, that they can't even think. How does he know that? How does he know about that particular person and about their particular spiritual life and, and what God is doing in that person's life and how is that showing up in that person's life? And I could go on and on about why I think that's wrong thinking, but the point is it is thinking that people hold. It is thinking that people have. And we base it on some passages of Scripture like the wheat and the tares. The, Jesus describes that there's fields of wheat and in the middle of the fields of wheat are these weeds, the tares that grow up. And that at the end of time, God is going to come and he's going to harvest the fields. And he's going to take the good wheat and he's going to put it in his barn. And he's going to take the, bad, the, the weeds and the tares and he's going to burn them in a pile. 
And we take that, or, or the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where the sheep are on one side and the goats are on the other, and the sheep have done really nice things for people and helped people, and the goats have been really mean to people. And he says to the sheep, come, enter my rest. And to the goats, he says, depart from me, you wicked, evil people. And we read that, but we make two mistakes when we read those passages and we apply them to our lives. One, we misunderstand that this is God talking. This is not us talking. See, we want to take the parable of the wheat and the tares and apply it to our lives and say, well, now I can do that to people. Now I can start looking out there into the fields and figuring out who is and who isn't. And we're putting ourselves on the throne of God. And the second thing we're missing is that this is at the end of time. This isn't right here, right now. The story has yet to be told. The story hasn't been told yet. It's not finished. If you had looked at Darth Vader choking people to death, you would have said, bad guy, weeds. But you don't know the internal battle, the conflict that's going on. You don't know their end time destination. It's not to minimize hell. It's not to minimize bad stuff. It is to minimize our looking into people's lives and thinking we know it all. Thinking we can apply what applies to God to ourselves. Marsha Roberts, who's sitting right back here, sent me an email this week, and I hope I don't embarrass you, but she, she sent me thoughts on last week's sermon. And uh, she was very kind. But she sent this poignant note. She sent about ten notes that she had thought of, and she said this. She said, Christians at their best are, in a sense, hypocritical. They're trying to emulate a man who never sinned. That clearly does not give them the right to look askance at anyone else. First off, that's an impressive word, askance. That's one of those words you hear and you're like, I know what that means, but I don't think I really know what that means. But it makes sense. And this, you know, in, 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 in a way, anytime we look at another and evaluate anything, we're hypocritical. Because we are. We're trying to be like the perfect man all the time. And we will never be that person. We all walk around with this inner hypocrisy all the time. And only God can fix that. Only God can restore it. If you read Romans chapter 10, I won't quote this whole passage for you, but it basically says, stop playing triage. It says that's not faith. Faith is not trying to figure out who is and who isn't. It says the, the righteousness that comes by faith does not say who will ascend into heaven. It says that's to bring Christ down from his throne. It says it's not to say who will descend into the deep. That's to bring Christ up from the depths. In other words, it says don't try to figure out who's heaven bound. Because when you do that, you're bringing Christ off his throne and placing yourself in his place. And it says, don't try to figure out who's going to hell, because when you do that, you're kind of acting like Jesus didn't give it all. Jesus didn't do everything, everywhere, in all of history, at all times, in all places, everything in his power to rescue everyone he possibly could. Because we're trying to pick and choose people and confine them to hell. And we're not supposed to do that. Scripture says, don't play triage. Last week we talked about what I consider the base, most important verse in all of Scripture. I th it's, the, it's the lens that I view all of Scripture through. And it's, it's at the cross when he's being tortured, mutilated, left embarrassingly to die, practically naked in front of lots of people in the cold. And he says to the people torturing him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see that there's a sense of ignorance is bliss in this passage. He says, when you don't know... It comes with a special mercy. And what we have to realize is nobody really knows. 
Nobody really knows what they're doing. Nobody gets it all. And so from our perspective, mercy ought to be the natural outflow all the time. If you read John 3.17, 3.16 is very popular. 3.17 people don't tend to know as well. It says, God did not come into the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. His heart is to look into the mess and find what is pretty and find what is beautiful and put those things together and make a beautiful instrument out of them. That's what, he is not now in the process of judging and condemning. He's in the process of healing and fixing. At the end of time, things will play out, but for now, that's what he does. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, which means to change. We have a view of God like this. I've shown this picture before. I'll show it another thousand times, but this is how we view God. We view him as the dad with the belt, coming to beat the tar out of you because you did something wrong. And this picture might be accurate without the belt. The kid is hiding under the bed, has, has shamed itself, uh, stolen something. I remember stealing something at a, at a pharmacy when I was a kid and going and hiding under my bed, thinking no one would ever know while I ate the candy I had stolen. And there's a kind of dad who would drag your butt out from under the table, or out from under the bed and make sure you never stole that candy again. But I don't think God's that kind of God. I think God's the one that squats down and looks and says, what's going on here? And you know what? We, we should return that. We should make this right. I understand why you did that. I, I get it that you're four years old and you don't really have a clue what's going on. But my, my idea would be, you know, let's return that and let's get things rolling in the right direction. And then the kid has the option of kicking and screaming and fighting and never coming out from under the bed. And that's just an ugly, awful place to be. And that has its own consequences. That's not a beating with a belt. It's just being trapped under a bed your whole life. And it's just a dumb place to be. And you can stay under, if you wanted to stay under the bed for all eternity, you're going to be covered in cobwebs. You're going to be lonely. It's going to be ugly. And all the time there was this God saying, let's come out and fix this. And some people will ultimately say, I ain't coming out. And they will get what they lived for. But God's heart in the whole thing is healing and fixing. You look at the story of Peter. In the New Testament, Peter was one of Jesus' top three best friends. And Peter says, I would die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, buddy. He says, you're going you're gonna to deny me. And it happens. When Jesus is being beaten and taken to the cross, this, a handmaiden comes to Peter and says, I, I saw you with Jesus. He says, no, I wasn't with Jesus. I got nothing to do with that guy. And somebody else, a, a merchant, says, no, 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 you were with him. I remember when he was preaching. You, you were the guy passing out the fish. He says, that's not me. And the third person, and he finally starts cussing, blankety blank, I'm not blankety with Jesus, blankety blank. You guys have got the wrong guy. And right at that moment, there's this sign. It's, it's a rooster crowing that Jesus told him would happen. And he knows he's abandoned his best friend. He's abandoned the, the one he said he would live for and die for. But the interesting thing is, after Jesus is dead and resurrected, the angels appear to some women. And the angels give the women some instructions at the end of the book of Mark. And they say, go and tell the disciples and Peter to wait for him. Really interesting. The angel sent from God says, Peter needs some special attention right now. Peter needs to be mentioned specifically because I know right now he's feeling lousy. And then shortly after, you see this restoration thing happen where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, okay, we're cool. Go lead my church. 
and this restoration thing happens. In the, in the story of, of, of Star Wars, right before the scene that you're talking about, Luke Skywalker confronts Darth Vader. He says, I feel the good in you, the conflict. He could recognize it. And see, what we want to do a lot of times is say, I can see the bad in you. I can see the awfulness in you and give up on people. But that's, that didn't work in the story and it doesn't work in real life. And then, of course, Darth Vader says, you were right. You were right about me after the reconciliation, after the healing happens. And in the story, you see, G, or you see Darth Vader facing off with this moment of choice. It's a moment of redemption. He can save his son or he can go down with power. He can die for his child or he can be filled with anger and hate that will allow him to rule the universe. And he makes the right choice. And redemption moments like that happen all the time in our lives. They happen every single day in our lives in one sense or another. Not always to that magnitude. May, probably in most of our lives we're never going to save the universe in an act. But we, in a sense, do perpetuate a restored universe every day with our decisions. Every day with our conversations. Every day with, with how we choose to live our lives. How we choose to treat people. And every moment is a moment where you're faced with this idea of redemption. And will I come out from under the bed? Will I come out and come to my father who has my best interests at heart, who wants to be close to me, wants, me to, tur wants to turn me into a cello that can play the most beautiful classical music, even though I'm just ugly in a junk pile? We're faced with those moments every day. The end of the song from Waterdeep talks about how you have choices. When you're, when you're the one laying there, needing the triage, you have choices. And it says, now you can take your chance and beat your fists on the boards of despair. You can end up with splinters in your knuckles thinking unjust, unfair. So you can just give up and say, I'm one of the dying ones. He says, or you can fall on the altar of sadness and call for the knife. So he says, or you can say, okay, I'm one of the ones that could be saved, but it's going to require something awful, some surgery, some cutting. He says, but either way, you're just denying your hearing because if you put your ear to God's chest, it says you're here the pulse of life. And when, when we're laying there in the need of triage, we're thinking none of the options are good. It's because we don't understand the Father, that if we listen to His heart and we hear Him, there's nothing but good. There's nothing but life. It says, now you've been close to dying. This is, this is kind of the, the opposite of the earlier passage. In fact, you've crossed the line. You've done sailed right past the turning point, thinking everything's fine. When the gas runs out and you're sitting there stone cold, you'll think, I was young when all this started, but now I'm old. And then he closes it with this thought. But when the doctor pushes the triage crew aside, he says, you're all long on diagnosis, short on cure. He turns to you and he says, come on, darling, we can make this. Yes, I'm sure. The whole time I've been praying about this service and trying to wrap my head around what direction it could go, I, all I could get, all I could think about was the concept that God is in the redemption business, that God is in the healing business, that God is in the restoration business, God is in the reconciling business. We have him in all these other businesses that he's not in. He's in the business of... of Picking people up, cleaning them off, maximizing their potential, making them beautiful and special and amazing. And that's what he does. God is love. From the beginning of time when he created people, that's why he created them. 
was to make something beautiful that he could be a friend with. 